Morning, Grace. <clears throat> I am thinking I should not have brought my notes on paper. And uh, oh well, too late for that. Hey, um, so we're going to be in Proverbs 5, as was mentioned this morning. So you may want to go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn there. I did at least bring a paperweight, so I think we'll be okay. Um, my kids, <clears throat> when they heard that this was the passage I was given for this Sunday, the passage about the forbidden woman, they let out a collective groan. And, and, and so on behalf of my kids, they want you to know that I don't pick these passages on sex and marriage and adultery. I just, when it comes time that I get an invitation, I turn in my dates to Kenny, he runs them through the grinder, out pops a passage, and so, uh, so here we go. Now, a little bit more seriously, I, I recognize that some of us here, either today or watching by live stream, um, might be wondering, how is it that we wound up on the first major passage concerning the forbidden woman on the Sunday after the presidential election? Uh, why, why would that be what we talk about? Maybe somebody's wondering, aren't there things that would be more immediately germane to our situation? And I just want to share a couple of thoughts about how we wound up where we wound up. First, and is that in the providence of God, he knows what we need. He knows what we need today. He knew what we need when the schedule was being planned. So uh, it, perhaps there's somebody here or somebody watching via the live stream today that needs these words. Maybe somebody's playing with fire and they need to be restrained. They need to be encouraged to turn back by this very warning that we're gonna be considering together. Second reason uh, that I think it's, it's, it's very important for us to, to be in this passage today is that it is so easy for us under any conditions to be tempted to think that our biggest problem is out there somewhere that it's some other person, that it's some other thing, that it's some other institution. And we need to be reminded, all of us, on a regular basis, don't we, that our biggest problem is personal sin before a holy God. Uh, Biden can't do anything about that for you. Trump can't do anything about that for you. That's something that only Jesus can do something for you. We need to be reminded that the person who can do the most damage to our own lives is ourselves. I can destroy my life faster and more effectively than anyone else can if I'm the kind of person who ignores the type of warnings that we're going to hear today. Now, I also want to let you know that I'm mindful that, that whether it's live stream or in person, I know that we've got kids among us today. And you can be sure that, that I'm not going to be salacious in any of the details that I talk about, although it is a frankly erotic passage. Uh, I love having little ones around for the worship hour. I think it's good for us. I think it's good for them. But I, but I also want you to consider how soon even these squirmy little ones are going to need these words of wisdom. Parents, it is so crucial that by God's grace, we capture their hearts, obviously in age-appropriate ways, but that we capture their hearts with the wisdom of sexual morality rather than the, the folly of sexual immorality. And frankly, when you, when, you, when you consider all of the messaging of sexual folly that our children are exposed to before they get to their first Disney movie even, our problem is not that we're talking about sex and romance and beauty and marriage. It's not that we're, prob the problem's not that we're talking about those things too much. We're not talking too much with them. I, I, I often say to my students in one of the classes that I teach, that sexual folly is looking for you. 
and it's looking for your children or it will be looking for your children if you haven't had them yet. You do not have to go looking for it. It is on the prowl and it is looking for you. So we can't afford to be squeamish. We can't afford to fail to warn and we cannot be the kind of people who would paint as negative what by God's design and in the proper context is beautiful. So the pivotal theme uh, for us in the, in the book of Proverbs, really, but, but uh, in particular in the development of the first nine chapters, is the sharp distinctions that the Father is drawing between the way of folly and the way of wisdom. And today, and really for the next several chapters, he's going to turn his attention to the divergence between wisdom and folly in the matters of sexual immorality and sexual integrity. So if you have your Bibles, uh, follow along with me. I'd like to read the entirety of Proverbs chapter 5 and then invite God's blessing on our time together. So Proverbs chapter 5, verse 1. The Father says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to shale. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. And do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others in your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our very simple and urgent request this morning is that by means of the Spirit's application, you would take this word deep into our hearts, restrain folly, and make us wise. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we see right at the outset of this chapter that there is a warning. The Father's giving a warning before the time of temptation comes. Uh, Before the son may think he's vulnerable, before we may think we're vulnerable to this temptation. The son needs to know, and we need to know, that we are vulnerable to sin, even to sexual immorality, even to adultery. Those who think they are not vulnerable to this type of temptation won't be vigilant. And those who are not vigilant become more susceptible. 
So here's what the father's doing. He's taking the warning from last Sunday in Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, and he's applying it to the matter of sexual morality now for the better part of three chapters. It is critical that we understand the centrality of the heart in all of this and why the father wants the son to guard the wellsprings of his heart. The reason is this, the body follows the heart. The body moves toward what the heart attaches itself to. So if we would be the kind of people who would avoid the affair the way the father wants, we must have a prior concern on what nourishes the heart. Now, <clears throat> let me give a quick warning of my own this morning. If you feel like you are just not at this stage of life, you're single, you're a youth, this isn't a, a, a front and center issue for you, please don't tune out. Please don't tune out. In back of the forbidden woman stands Lady Folly. So there's a message for everyone here, whether you're a youth, whether you're married, whether you're unmarried, folly would draw every single one of us along in sin and destruction of all kinds. And she would love to have you think that you are immune to sexual immorality because you're not married today, or because at this particular moment in time, that thought happens to disgust you. Now, one other caveat about this passage. There's a way of reading this passage that makes it seem like the, like the women are the predators and the women, are, excuse me, the men are, are sort of naive and innocent. That's actually not what's happening here. I am not saying, and the father is not saying, that women are more predatorial than men, okay? The instruction is given from the vantage point of a father to a son, and the core issue is not so much what the forbidden woman does, but what is being cultivated in the heart of the son. So, so the central contest here is not a contest between naive men and predatorial women. It's a contest between lady wisdom and lady folly. And the issue is which one will this young man wed himself to? For you and I, it's who will we wed ourselves to? If he binds himself to Lady Folly, as expressed in the, in, the, in the person of the forbidden woman, the prior problem that that will reveal is that he has a lack of binding in his heart to God. It's fully reversible when the man's the predator and the woman is the one facing the temptation. Now, the chief strategy of temptation that we see in these verses is the strategy of deception. If you see in verse three again, her lips drip honey and smooth words. But if you continue into verses four and five, the end of these actions and these words is bitterness, piercing, and death. This is what Hebrews eleven twenty five calls the fleeting pleasures of sin. So before the encounter, dad says, She's going to seem awfully enticing, son. Her words will be smooth. Her appearance will be sweet, but it does not end the way that you think it will. Now, having said that, this attempted deception only succeeds. It can only succeed if his heart is willing to go along with the deception, which is why vigilance of heart is of the utmost urgency. So I want to spend a little bit of time uh, doing uh, kind of an anatomy of sin, an anatomy of temptation with you. I want to explore a couple of tactics of deception and the way that it works. And that'll help us to better receive the father's countermeasures that come a little bit later in the chapter. Okay, so here's, here's the first uh, tactic of, of sin's deception. 
One of the things that the deception of sin does, it goes, it's trying to cultivate our own participation and our own demise. And one of the ways it does this is by going to work on our own self-pity and pride, okay? This is not the only thing it does, but it's one of the things it does. So, so here's an example, right? <clears throat> so life gets hard and we may begin to bathe our own sense of woundedness, our sense of hurt, our sense of disappointment. These, they may even be genuine disappointments, right? We begin to bathe those disappointments and that woundedness in self-pity. And in those circumstances, that can begin to breed a sense of what I think I deserve as contrasted with what I'm actually getting. I may even begin to think that I'm the only one who really and truly sees the situation for, for what it is. And, and that can activate a sense of, of proud self-reliance that, that kind of has the mentality nobody else really understands. Right? I'm the only one who sees clearly. And if I, if I take that inward and I begin to nurse that kind of thinking in secrecy, I may begin to, to, to indulge some false and unfair comparisons. Right, Comparisons between the inside of my relationship with a real person whose faults I see as well as strengths. And then illegitimately compare that to another person that I only see what image they're projecting. I only see the exterior. I don't see the inside. I'm, I'm not allowed to see any of the faults and flaws. And at first, that can happen just in the inner thoughts. But if this goes unchecked long enough, actions may begin to try to peek their head out of the ground and see what I can maybe get away with that could nurse that pity just a little bit. And the first time that seems to meet with reception, right, from, from someone else out there, <clears throat> that can feel supercharged. Buzz, electricity, excitement. I may, maybe I feel alive. Let me be absolutely clear, friends. That's not love. That is not marital, unconditional, till death do us part love. The person experiencing it may say that it feels like it, but it's not. It's an imitation. It's lust. And lust feeds on discontent. Lust always wants what it does not have. Lust is always angling for more than it got last time. It's insatiable. And it's an imitation. So what's happening here, right? In the situation that we just described, this fictitious situation, well, in that scenario, the, 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 the person involved is, is dealing with the, the double whammy of at one and the same time being blind to actual danger while also feeling like he or she sees more and more clearly than anyone else actually does. That's the danger of being blind and not knowing it. And so that kind of person is in grave danger of resisting counsel from God's word and God's family and even refusing it when somebody else sees warning signs and offers counsel and warning. I had a former pastor tell the story of a close friend who was spending time alone with a woman who was not his wife, going to dinner, going to movies, foolish stuff. And the pastor warned him to quit. He said, this is a path that leads to destruction. Don't go there. The friend said, no, I'll be fine. No big deal. Nothing will ever happen. What happened? Eventually, his body followed his heart. He had been warming his heart 
with companionship over forbidden fires, companionship that he was not offering to his wife. And before he knew it, he was having an affair and setting fire to those that he really and truly loved. Now, we need to understand that contrary to what the whispers of pride and self-pity would tell us, and uh, Behemoth did a good job of illustrating this a moment ago, it is the sin inside of us that is far more dangerous than the hardships outside of us. So we all need to consider this morning, where are we giving in to pride? Where are we giving in to a proud independence that would cut ourselves off from God's word and from others who would watch our back? Here's a second tactic of deception, of sin and temptation. Not only does, does, do these deceptions go to work on our pride and self-pity, but, but more specifically, they go to work on pride and self-pity by means of what I would call a word contest, right? Contrary claims. This goes back all the way to Genesis 3, doesn't it? God says, in the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll surely die. The serpent says, you won't surely die. Not only will you not surely die, he's holding out on you. He's holding out the best stuff. He's keeping it from you. He's not for you. He's against you. That's exactly what's happening here in Proverbs 5, isn't it? It is the words of the father versus the honeyed words of the forbidden woman. It's the words of lady wisdom versus the words of lady folly. Who will he believe? Sin always proceeds on the back of false promises. If it didn't make false promises, it would have no appeal because nobody sins out of a sense of duty. Nobody feels like they've got to fill up their quota of sin in a, in a, in a, in a boring and, and drudgery laden kind of way, right? We sin at least in the moment that we sin because we want to. We're doing what we want to. We're believing false promises. Now, Notice in verse 4 that her appeals to this young man are described as being sharp as a two-edged sword. Her two-edged sword is meant to kill and destroy. Her words are meant to maim and to wound. But you know what else is sharp as a two-edged sword, don't you? Hebrews 4.12, the word of God living and active, sharp as any two-edged sword. This sword is not meant to to kill or destroy the child of God. It is a surgical instrument to purge folly and to heal. Friends, we're all going to be cut by one word or the other. It's not a matter of if, it's a question of which. Will we be cut to pieces or will we be surgically cleansed from our foolishness? Howard Hendricks, a late professor, much beloved professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, over the course of his ministry there, uh, compiled some findings from ministry to 246 fallen pastors, pastors over the course of his ministry. He uh, <clears throat> came up with four key findings, four commonalities that were true in these cases. One of them, it's a, it's a worthwhile study, you can find it online. But one of these findings was that each of these men, all 246, had made themselves more vulnerable to an affair because they had all but ceased having a daily time of personal prayer, Bible reading, and worship. Now, you might think, well, pastors, they get, they get paid to do Bible, right? So, so how could they withdraw from that? Here's what happened. Their relationship to the Word of God had become professionalized. Yes, they were spending time in the words of, Word of God, probably a lot of time in the Word of God, but they were using it as a means to an end. They were using it purely for vocational purposes, maybe even to impress other people. 
But the danger came in using God as a means to some other end rather than primarily as a tool for enjoying God himself. And it's not just pastors. We can all take a utilitarian approach to the word of God, just setting it on the shelf, bypassing it until the situation becomes really, really desperate. And then, you know, try to use it like a talisman, right? Of some sort to kind of ward off the consequences of the sin that I'm, that I'm playing with. It's often too late when you get to that moment in time, isn't it? Another aspect of sin's deception, it's not just a word contest, but it's a word contest, here's the tactic, that has as its goal the facilitation of slow and subtle compromises. Slow and subtle drift, right? We, we, we illustrated this a moment ago, but, but if the enemies of your soul went from zero to 60 like that, it'd be too obvious what they were up to, right? We, we wouldn't fall prey to the temptation. So the world, the flesh, and the devil, they're playing the long game. It's death by degree, They don't want you to see what's going on. They want you to get comfortable with a series of small compromises. Here's how John Owen, uh, the Puritan theologian, put it. This is excellent. He said, sin always aims at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, if it has its own way, it will go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism if allowed to develop. Every rise of lust, if it has its way, reaches the height of villainy. It is like the grave that is never satisfied. The deceitfulness of sin is seen in that it is modest in its first proposals. But when it prevails, it hardens men's hearts and brings them to ruin. Did you catch that? Every act of lust is trying as hard as it can to become adultery. Friends, you can't keep sin at bay. You can't keep sin of any kind at bay by feeding it. It is, it is the epitome of folly to think that I can indulge just a little bit and not be changed into the kind of person who wants more. Now, <clears throat> what about the, the countermeasures? What does the, the father advise his son by way of countermeasures to these kinds of deceptive offers. Uh, There's really two kinds of categories. I've I've thought of them as as defensive measures and offensive measures. So so the first one is a defensive maneuver. Uh, Look at verse eight again. He says to the son, before he ever meets this woman, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. In other words, stay far away. She's going to make false promises. You're not as immune as you think you are. Don't even go there. What radical thing needs to be done in your life to cut off access to these honeyed words that would take you down to death? What is that thing? Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 puts it this way, uh, flee sexual immorality. Jesus in Matthew 5 says, gouge out the eye that's causing you to sin. Metaphorically, of course, but it is meant to shock and awe the hearer into doing whatever is necessary to stay away from the words that lead to death. I had a student years ago, this was before um, smartphones, before smartphones. So, uh, so a smartphone wasn't his issue. He had a clamshell, that really wasn't a big deal. But he was in the death match with the lure of pornography. <clears throat> and so what did, he end up, what did he end up deciding he needed to do? He dumped his laptop. That made the inconvenience factor in his life go way up because now when he needed to write a paper, he had to do it in the library on a library computer. 
He had to do it in the computer lab on a computer lab computer. He had to do it at a friend's house when a friend was done using the laptop in the company of a friend. The inconvenience factor went way up. But who cares about convenience if convenience is participating in one's own destruction? Whatever it costs you to cut off poison's access to your heart, do it. Do it today. If you need to get rid of your smartphone, do it. If you need to get an accountability partner who has access to your smartphone, do it. Whatever it needs to be, right? It is a small price to pay in in, in the sense of convenience in comparison to what it could cost you to keep poison near our hearts. Now, another thing that the father does here, right? So he's, he's warning in advance, but he also wants to help the son see where this path goes. He tries to, he shows the son the outcome, right? He shows the son exactly what your enemy doesn't want you to see. Look at verses 11 through 14 again. Those are powerful and painful words. At the end of your life, you groan. He's talking about a son who potentially may not heed the warning. When your flesh and body are consumed and you say how I hated discipline and how my heart despised reproof. I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. That's a bitter end of embracing Lady Folly. And the son wants this, excuse me, the father wants the son to see that before he might ever encounter her and hear the whispers that she would offer him. Now, I want you to also notice this, right? Now, gr- granted, this is, this is a prospective picture of, of what could happen down the road. But even in, this, even in this way of casting things, the young man in these verses, 11 through 14, does not consider himself innocent because he was enticed, right? When he finally, if he goes down this path, when he finally comes to, this, to his senses, he doesn't blame the forbidden woman. He doesn't blame God. He, he makes no excuses. He blames himself. You know what he says? He says, I listened to the wrong words. I embraced the wrong words. Verse 13, I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline myself, or excuse me, incline my ear to my instructors. Again, he's got to have a willing heart to participate in its own deception. If he doesn't have that, then her words lose the contest. Now, For all the heartache that you can see, I mean, it's palpable in verses 11 through 14. I also want to say that I think verses 11 hold out hope for those who have gone too far. And that's all of us in some sense, isn't it? Right, right, right. All sin constitutes us as spiritual adulterers. So in going too far, I, I, I take these words, verses 11 through 14, even if it's a bitter, groaning, end-of-life confession, they still read like a confession. So what if you've gone too far in this or some other area? Come back. Jesus was delivered to the grave on account of our embrace of Lady Folly, and his payment satisfies the debt. The only thing that you would have to do, if that's you this morning, is to receive that payment with humble confession and repentance. And I'll be honest... It'll hurt like crazy. But when it's over, you'll be free. It kind of reminds me of this this scenario. It reminds me of the the scene in in, uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader from Chronicles of Narnia. 
where Eustace has turned himself into a dragon by, by greedily grabbing up all of this treasure. And, and he gets rescued by Aslan. And, and then he's, in this little quotation here, he's reflecting on what Aslan did to him. It's, it's very well put. <clears throat> then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep, I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund, and if you know Edmund's uh, earlier betrayal, you know he knows what he means. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, he tried to heal himself with half measures, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much for I was very tender underneath now that I'd had no skin on. And he threw me into the water and it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. The embrace of folly is subhuman. But there is a way to come back. So if you are this guy or this gal today, verses 11 through 14, with bitter regret, you feel like you're on the brink of ruin. I want you to know <clears throat> that Jesus loves humbled sinners and he loves to make repentant fools wise. Remember that when Jesus was crucified, he was publicly humiliated and mocked as though he were a fool. He was treated as a fool on your behalf and mine. We're fools, he's not. He took our place, bearing our folly and shame. And he did that to rescue fools and to bring prodigals home. What about the offense? Once you get to verse 15, the father's advice turns from being more defensive in nature to offensive in nature. And I want you to see here that he doesn't just say, and the gospel never just says, just don't do bad stuff. That's not the gospel, okay? That's not all it says. There is always a better than. In this passage, there is better intimacy and better sex in marriage than with the forbidden woman. And the gospel promises better love and better delight. The father is not calling the son to embrace less. He is calling him to embrace more. And the first thing he exhorts his son to delight in is the wife of his youth. This is powerful. And I'm not going to go into all the details, but he's basically saying, drink the good stuff, son. There are three times in the last five verses where the father uses this word for intoxicate. One of them is, is a positive use of the word intoxicate. Two of them are negative. Uh, one's, two of them are obvious in English. One of them's not so obvious, but I'll point them out to you. <clears throat> in verse 19, 
he tells his son to be intoxicated always in the love of his wife. Get drunk with delight in the wife of your youth, dad says. It's amazing, right? Then he contrasts that in verse 20 by saying, why would you, same word, same word, why would you be intoxicated with a forbidden woman? Why would you allow yourself to be drunken with fool's gold rather than the love of the wife of your youth? And then down in verse 23, it says, he dies for lack of discipline. This is the one who doesn't listen, obviously. And because of his great folly, he is, my translation says led astray, but it could just as well say he's intoxicated, right? He's dragged away in the final consequences of sin and unbelief. Here's what dad's saying. He's saying, fight fire with fire. Fight the fire of false pleasure with the fire of superior pleasure. Also, in verse 18, when he says, says rejoice in the wife of your youth, let me be very clear. He's not saying rejoice in your wife while she's young. He's saying rejoice in the wife of your youth. In other words, he's saying, here's beauty, son. May you grow to find her more intoxicating on your 50th wedding anniversary than you did on your wedding day. And, and for the person who holds wisdom close to the heart, that's possible, right? That's actual. Now, to be sure, the nature of romantic love grows over time. It grows more stable. It grows less torrid. And there are some pluses to that because they've, they've got to do other stuff too, right? <laughs> But it may be the case that some of us here today, even, even who are not on the brink of ruin, <clears throat> it may be that some of us are not rejoicing in the wives of our youth the way that we should. Some of us may have become complicit in letting the enthusiasm for the wife of our youth be more temperate than it should. For some of us, that may be because mental savoring that belongs to the wife is being given to someone else. And if it were to go no further than that, Jesus says it's already sin. But we've already seen that sin is never so easily satisfied, is it? It may be, perhaps, that it's grown too temperate because we've allowed delight to grow into a critical spirit over the years. Maybe we more easily see her frustrations and flaws and have a harder time seeing what thrills the heart of God about her. Now, this is totally, again, reversible. So uh, I'm going to give an assignment to you. And, and, and wives, you absolutely uh, can and should participate in this assignment. But I'm just going to stick with the manner of its presentation. Husbands, here's your homework for the next seven days. Ponder in prayer how your wife has loved you, served you, prayed for you, intertwined her life with yours, raised kids with you, suffered with you, suffered at times because of you, how she's received your confession, how she's extended you forgiveness, how she's pointed you time and again to the cross. Praise God and don't keep it to yourself. Tell her of that kind of praise. And as dad says here in Proverbs 5, get absolutely intoxicated on that kind of love. Now, as joyful as all of that can be, even as it's mixed in marriages with hard, wisdom would point us ultimately and finally in the direction of feasting and the better blessings of God's unconditional love, which marriage is 
finally a point or two, right? Marriage points beyond itself to better love. <clears throat> Ray Ortland put it this way. Kenny put this in the Grace Wire this week. It's a great quote, too good not to repeat. He says, the Bible is not shy about sex. And its message is clear. Sexual folly destroys. Sexual wisdom satisfies. And Christ is better than the best sex. See, because of Jesus, the believer can enjoy the presence of God, right? As a, as a blessing and not a form of judgment. It's the very best blessing of all. It's what some theologians call as living quorum Deo, right? Intentionally, conscientiously, purposefully, with an awareness of God's presence and before his face at all times. Verse 21 tells us that a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. Now, the son who embraces wisdom before the Lord will flee immorality. But the one who would embrace folly instead attempts what is truly foolish, it's the attempt to flee the presence of God, the gaze of God, so that we might feel better about intoxicating ourselves with poison. Contrast that way of thinking with the life of Joseph. We, we, we did, it wasn't too long ago, we preached through the book of Genesis. And in Genesis 39, you'll, you'll recall that Joseph was a man who had literal repeated run-ins with the forbidden woman. But he was able to stand in the face of temptation, even though he was faced with the same lure, the same uh, temptation of potentially getting away with it. But his heart had been vigilantly kept so that when the opportunity was presented to him, he said, instead of, okay, he said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Life quorum Deo. <clears throat> Dad wants the son's heart to grow strong like, jo like Joseph's. <laughs> If his heart is rooted in wisdom before God and is satisfied with better love, his taste for bitter fruit will diminish in this life. And that's what we desire for one another this morning. So how specifically is God's word warning you today? Whether it's in the area of sexual immorality or other forms of sin, where are you resisting perhaps the humility of fleeing dangerous words or repenting from regrettable choices? Where do you think yourself strong when in fact you're weak? Where do you think you are sighted when you're blind? Where are you indulging hiding, secrecy, self-pity, a sense of entitlement that it's okay for me to play with fire? I don't know who I'm talking to today in terms of what, what, what you're processing in the inner person, but God does. And if that speaks to you, he wants you to turn back. These warnings are warnings of mercy and love. <clears throat> now, let me say one more thing to those who might consider themselves fallen, who consider themselves to be too far gone. Even if nobody else knows what you've done or where you've gone, I want you to know that you're not alone and that you're not beyond the reach of God's love. <clears throat> Here's how one pastor put it. He said, there's no sin too great to be forgiven, but it cannot be forgiven while it is being justified and hidden. Friend, you see that, that when it comes to sin, like sexual immorality, the beginning looks sweet, but the end is death. When you look at coming to Christ, on the other hand, or maybe coming back to Christ from sin, the beginning is death. It's death to self. It is dying with Christ, but the end is incomprehensibly sweet. So if you would turn to him 
today who was crushed for your folly, you'll have what you can't give yourself. You'll have what none of us deserves. You'll be known and not rejected. You'll be known and loved by God. And that is the good news. So as Kenny comes to lead us in the conclusion of our worship today, I just want us to be, to be remembering how we can pray for one another and who we should be praying for. Wives, pray for your husbands. Husbands, pray for your wives. You can do it during the closing worship, after worship, during the week. Parents, pray for children. Pray for the generations who have not yet felt the weight of these temptations and do not today understand the weight of these words. Married people, pray for single people. Single people, pray for married people. Maybe some of you need to confess to a grace group leader or an elder or an accountability partner on your way out that you're way more vulnerable than you previously thought. And lastly, I want you to know that at Grace, we are committed to walking with the broken including those who have broken themselves. So if your head is spinning right now and you have no idea how to take the first step in coming back, there are people here who can help. Some will be at the tree, the prayer tree in the back. I'll be around. There are people and resources we would love to point you to. We can assemble teams and walk with you to help you come home to better love.